Rocky Peak, it's great to be with you. My name's Michael, and I'm one of the pastors here. And what an amazing week we had with VBS here. And it's just so many great stories. And uh, my thanks to you, especially to you parents. I know that for many of you, this is a week you traditionally look forward to, like, hey, someone else is taking my kids, and they're getting great content. But this was a year we said, hey, we want to partner with you as you shepherd your kids for Jesus. And so thank you for investing in them with us. It was just a great week. But anyway, we're going to go into our time of teaching right now. And so inside your, uh, well, I was going to say inside your program, old, old, uh, old Habits Die, but uh, uh, in, uh, you, hopefully you've kind of downloaded that already, the, uh, the note sheet, and then we'll be ready to go. Okay, so let's jump in and let's pray together. And so God, we're just so thankful to be here uh, under your leadership as a church. And though as I often say, though we're physically distanced, it's spiritually we're connected through your Holy Spirit. And wherever we are right now, whether we're, we're sitting at a kitchen table, whether we're lying on the floor in front of a big screen TV, whether we're in a park somewhere, out on a boat watching, that you unite us. And so, Father, we pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would take your word, illumine our eyes. Father, we pray that the eyes of our heart would be open, that we might see the reality of the unseen realm in new ways and the power that we have in Christ. We pray this in your name. And everyone said, amen. Well, our story starts today late at night. They've been sitting around the campfire for hours, and honestly, they're not sure what they're going to do. The last two weeks have been amazing. In fact, what they've seen even in this last week is something that they never thought they'd, they'd live long enough to see. And it's just been incredibly exciting. And then today happened. And this afternoon, all that changed, the joy, the elation, has now turned to fear and dread. The event that's happened has shaken their world. And they've gone from the heights to the depths. And so they're sitting around the fire out here in the desert in the, this cold winter night. They're all, no one's saying what they're all wondering. What they're wondering is, will anyone, any of them survive until the morning to tell the tale of the disaster that their fear, they're afraid, is about to happen. Well, today we are continuing the series that we started a few weeks ago. That's called The Resurrected King, Spiritual Warfare in Times of Challenge. And if you're brand new here at Rocky Peak, I want to welcome you. Um, as the title suggests, this is a series about spiritual warfare. And one of the most important lessons that we've been learning in this series is for the follower of Jesus, that spiritual warfare is not like an isolated event or kind of an occasional sidebar experience in the Christian life, that it really goes to the heart of what it means to follow Jesus, and especially important in times of crisis like we're in right now, times of challenge. And so if you've been with us throughout this series, you know that several times in this series, we've gone to this key passage in Ephesians chapter 6, the last chapter of Paul's letter, the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Um, and we, we've looked at this challenge he gives us to engage in the spiritual battle. And today we're going to start there again, but we're actually going to go through the entire passage today, kind of a quick overview of the passage uh, and then I want to come back and I want to give you four important principles that are gui going to guide us through the rest of this series as we begin to unpack what the Apostle Paul calls the weapons of our warfare. So if you have your Bibles, you have your apps, let's go ahead and open up to Ephesians chapter 6. Uh, there in your note sheet, you have a section that's called the Resurrected King, the Weapons of War. And so in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10, Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Now, of course, uh, we now understand a little bit more what he's talking about because in the previous weeks we've looked at earlier in Ephesians, he talks about the power of the resurrected Jesus, how through his death and resurrection ascended to the right hand of the Father, that he now rules over all the dark powers. And so Paul says that as a follower of Jesus, connected with Jesus, uh, you want to be strong in the Lord. In fact, in the Greek, it says, be strengthened in the Lord and in this mighty resurrection power of our King. And then he says, put on the full armor of God 
so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Remember in the Greek, methodeus, his methods, his, uh, uh, his uh, schemes, his strategies. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, though it often seems like it is on the surface, but it's against these dark powers, it's against the rulers, it's against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, when the enemy charges, when the battle is raging, um, that you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand. So this is the basic challenge. And this is how far we've come in this series so far that Paul says, as a follower of Jesus, when you came to Jesus, you crossed kingdoms, you transferred kingdoms. You used to be part of the kingdom of darkness, whether you knew it or not, now you've been transferred into the kingdom of light. You used to swear allegiance to the dark side, you now have changed sides, you swore allegiance to the true king, the resurrected king. And as a result, you have entered into a new level of warfare. And your enemies are strong, they are strategic, they're brilliant, they're powerful, and they're out to destroy you. But the good news is as a follower of Jesus, you're connected with him, you're united with Jesus, and if you, uh, if you tap into Jesus and his strength and his mighty power, and if you put on the full armor of God, you will win. But I want you to catch this, if you don't tap into Jesus, and if you don't put on his full armor, you will lose. And so this is the basic challenge that we've seen so far in this series. But from this point on, now Paul is going to go on and he's going to give us seven examples of what he means by putting on the armor of God. Now in the coming weeks, we're going to do a deep dive into each of these seven. But today, I just want to introduce them to you and then give you some big picture principles that apply to all of them that will lead us through the rest of this series. And so let's see what the seven are. So he says in verse 14, so stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. So the first, the first uh, piece of armor is the belt of truth. And then he says, secondly, with the breastplate of righteousness in place. So he's describing the armor like of a Roman soldier. And uh, we won't go into depth today, but he says you're gonna put on the breastplate of righteousness, that's number two. Now I want you to pay attention to that language. He says, put on the breastplate of what? Yeah, righteousness. I want you to make a note of that because that'll become important later on. So then he moves on. And he says, uh, number three, verse 15, with your feet, so uh, you're gonna put on your military sandals. They have special sandals, kind of spiked sandals when they go to war to help them keep their uh, keep their, uh, their, their footing. He says, so with your feet uh, fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. So the third piece of uh, equipment is the, the, your kind of your, your, uh, your shoes or sandals, special military shoes or sandals. And then he goes on and he says in verse 16, in addition to all this, you're going to take the shield of faith. So the fourth piece of equipment is a shield of faith. So remember again, it's a shield of what? Yeah, the shield of faith. That becomes important later on today. Next, he says, in addition to uh, all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. So next, number five, we're going to take the helmet of salvation. So uh, the helmet of what? Yeah, salvation. Uh, Make note of that as well. All this is important for later. And he says, then number six, take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And then finally, th- this last piece of equipment, he doesn't really assign a term like a, in terms of armor or a weapon, but it seems to be the flow of the passage. The seventh weapon is, is prayer. He says, so pray in the spirit, be led by the spirit as you pray. And so pray on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. And with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all God's people. So all the Lord's people. So we're in a battle as a community. We need to be watching out for one another. I've got your back, you've got my back, and I'm gonna be covering you in prayer. And so that's the seventh and final weapon. Now, like I say, in the coming weeks, we will be doing a deep dive into each of these. In fact, uh, when we get to truth, we'll spend four weeks on that, it's just so critical. Uh, So we'll be in this series for a while, Uh, but for today, what I wanna do is make some observations, some principles about uh, the weapons of war and about spiritual warfare in general that it carries through this entire series, all right? So there in your note sheet, 
you have a section that's called The Resurrected King, Spiritual Warfare 101. So let's jump in. The first principle goes like this. As we begin to unpack this passage on spiritual warfare, it's very important we understand, number one, is that spiritual warfare is a metaphor, right? It's a metaphor. It's an illustration. Um, so you, you know this, that in the Bible, the Bible uses many types of uh, literature, uh, many types of, uh, of kind of ways of speaking. You know, sometimes people will ask me, well, do you believe the Bible is literally true? And I always have to ask him, what do you mean by that? Because obviously, the Bible uses many different forms of speech. It uses uh, poetry. It uses parables. And these aren't literal in the sense that uh, they're, they're, they're intended to be taken literally, like when the mountains will flow with wine or the, the trees of the field will clap their hands in, back in, the old, in, in Isaiah. These are not literal, but they're, they're describing a, a spiritual reality using poetic language. And one of, the, one of the, the, the literary tools that the Bible uses often are, are metaphors, similes, illustrations, parables to paint a spiritual picture. So for example, uh, in Psalm 23, David writes, the Lord is my shepherd. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He, he leaves me beside still waters. He, his rod and his staff is with me. These are not designed to be understood literally. But there's a spiritual truth being taught that God is like a good shepherd and the way a good shepherd would care for his sheep, protect his sheep, lead his sheep, guide his sheep, care for his sheep, that in that same way, Yahweh cares for us, that the Lord is my shepherd. It doesn't mean that God literally is walking around with this huge rod and this huge staff out throughout in heaven, right? And so we understand this, uh, we understand how this works in literature. Well, in the same way, as we jump into this passage, these next few weeks on spiritual warfare, it's important for us to understand that spiritual warfare is a metaphor and that we don't try to make it say more than it's designed to say. Now, we're going to come back to that in just a minute. I'll tell you a little bit more what I'm, what, uh, what I'm talking about, why I'm saying that. But before we do, I want to point out that not only is this uh, a metaphor, spiritual warfare is a metaphor, but it's an ancient metaphor, that it has roots that go very deep in Israel's history. So for example, uh, today we started the day with a story of this group of men that's been sitting around a campfire throughout the evening. It's freezing cold. It's the middle of winter. And the last few weeks, they've had this amazing experience in the experiences in their life, things that they never thought that they would live to see. But all of a sudden, this afternoon, their dream has turned to a nightmare. And this is my version of a story that's told in the Bible, the account of, of, of the exodus in the Bible, the exodus of Israel from the nation of Egypt from slavery in Exodus 14 and 15. And so if you're familiar with the account um, of the exodus, you know, God calls Moses to go to Egypt and to lead the people out. And he does that with a, by unleashing a series of like 10 uh, plagues upon the nation of Israel, upon, I mean, upon the nation of uh, Egypt and Pharaoh upon their gods. And at the end, Pharaoh finally says, okay, you can go. And so imagine the joy as they are leaving Egypt right? They've been there for over 400 years. None of them ever believed that they would live this long to see their freedom come true and to happen so rapidly in the course of the last few couple months, maybe weeks. That's unbelievable. But all of a sudden, their joy is going to turn to dread because at some point after they go, Pharaoh changes his mind and he's going to send his armies after them and now they've got the Red Sea in front of them, and the Egyptian army is one of the biggest superpowers in the world bearing down on them. And all of a sudden, this dream is turned into a nightmare. They're scared to death. But at this point, if you know the account, we're told that God came and he stood between the Egyptians and the Israelites, that he put a pillar of cloud there. And this pillar made it dark on the Egyptian side, light on the Israeli side. And that night that God split the Red Sea and his people were able to go through. And when the Egyptians later tried to follow, they were destroyed. And so when the Israel wakes up the next morning, after gone through in this fear and dread, the Egyptians, the, super, the superpowers army is destroyed, washing up there 
on the shores of the Red Sea, the chariots and the dead bodies. And so after that, Moses says, I need to write a song just to help us remember this amazing event. And by the way, the Exodus, many of us, uh, many, many Christians don't understand this, but the, the Exodus, the, this, uh, this leaving Egypt with the Passover and then the Red Sea, it's like the biggest event in Israeli history in the Old Testament. Everything in the Old Testament looks back to that deliverance, that salvation, in the same way as Christians, we look back to the cross. In the same way they celebrate the Passover to remember that deliverance, we celebrate communion to celebrate ours. And so Moses says, we've got to write a song about this so we can remember and celebrate it, never forget this amazing day. And there in your note sheet, we have the beginning of the song in, uh, in Exodus 15. In fact, this week in your summer study, you'll be looking at this passage a little bit, uh, little bit more. So it says, so Moses and the Israelites sang this song to Yahweh. And uh, he said, I will sing to the Lord, all caps, Yahweh. I will sing to Yahweh for he is highly exalted, both horse and driver, speaking of the Egyptians and their chariots. He is hurled into the sea. The Lord, Yahweh, he has become my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. And then catch this. The Lord is a what? He's a warrior. And the Lord, Yahweh, is his name. And so one of the very first ways that God reveals himself to his people is a warrior. The one who comes along to fight for them, to stand for them, to, to deliver them from their enemies. And this becomes a powerful image in the Old Testament. Again, your summer study this week, you'll see more examples of this. But by the time we get to Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah represents God as a warrior, sometimes stepping in to rescue his people, but catch this, at times fitting himself like a warrior to do battle almost against his people because of their sin and their injustice in the land. And so there, for example, in Isaiah 59, it says he, talking about Yahweh, the Lord, he put on righteousness as his what? His breastplate. Let me ask you something. Does that sound familiar? We just read this in Ephesians 6 that we were to put on the breastplate of righteousness. This is not a new thought. This is not a new metaphor that Paul created. Paul is knee deep in his Old Testament. He steps back in time and says, as followers of Jesus, we're now joining Yahweh in his spiritual battle. We're putting on his very armor, the breastplate of righteousness. And then, yeah, and then uh, Isaiah goes on and he puts the helmet of salvation on his head. Again, sound familiar? And we just read about that, the helmet of salvation. And so Paul is reaching back into Israel's history. This is a, a deep and rich metaphor that as followers of Jesus, we are joining Yahweh. We are joining the Messiah in this great spiritual battle and we are putting on the armor of God in our life. As we have come to Messiah, we've stepped into Messiah, we are putting on Messiah's armor to carry out his agenda. Now, before we leave this first point, I want to go back again and talk about this point I started with, that this is a metaphor, that, and, and we don't want to overpress the details. So there's a difference between a metaphor and an allegory. Like an allegory is where every detail of a story represents some kind of spiritual reality, right? This is not an allegory, it's a metaphor. Now, why do I say that? Well, the, the reason I say that is in the coming weeks, we're gonna be looking at the seven pieces of armor. And yes, we'll talk a little bit about the, the Roman, uh, Roman soldiers and how those pieces of armor work with their gear. We'll talk a little bit about that. But I don't wanna go too deep into that. I think it's often a mistake that's made. And often uh, we, we can begin to speculate and say, well, why is the breastplate of righteousness and the belt of truth? Why isn't it vice versa? Could it be the opposite? And then sometimes we'll speculate, well, you know, the breastplate, it covers our internal organs, it covers our heart, and like the righteousness of Christ, it covers our heart, and our, our, our uh, righteousness is a virtue, we're protecting our heart, and so we'll go into great detail way more than the passage calls for, way more than Paul intended. And you say, well, how do you know that? How do you know that he didn't intend that? 
Well, what's interesting is we see in another passage in the New Testament where he actually is using the same analogy or metaphor of spiritual warfare, but he gives different names to different pieces of armor. So for example, there in your note sheet, in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul says, let us be sober. In other words, uh, alert, you know, not, not spiritually drunk, not out of it. Let's be on our game. He says, let us be sober. And he says, putting on faith and love as a what? As a breastplate. Now we just read in Isaiah and we just read in Ephesians that Paul said that we're to put on the breastplate of righteousness. But here in Thessalonians, he says we're to put on the breastplate of faith and love. Well, wait a second. In Ephesians 6, faith was our shield and love was never mentioned. And this is what I'm getting at, that, that Paul is giving a big picture analogy saying we're in a spiritual battle and we need to put on the attributes of Messiah. We need to listen and follow and live out the life of the Spirit. Then as we do that, we will win. And so we don't wanna spend too much time going into great detail of each piece of armor and what it covers in white. I don't think that's the point. Notice he also goes on here. He says we're to put on the hope of salvation as a helmet. And so that stays consistent all with uh, Isaiah and, uh, and Ephesians and here in 1 Thessalonians, all right? So what I want you to catch is as we go through this series together, we're gonna be unpacking this together, but it is a metaphor. We don't wanna make it an allegory going too deep. We wanna, we wanna make it more difficult than it is. I don't think it's what Paul intends, all right? So number one, it's a metaphor. Number two, the weapons Paul mentions in this passage the weapons are not secret weapons. Now, we don't need to spend a lot of time here, but it's very important because often, I think when it comes to spiritual warfare, like if you go to a seminar on spiritual warfare, you go know, to a website on spiritual warfare, you read a book on spiritual warfare, you have a series on spiritual warfare, often we tend to expect, wow, this is going to get really deep around here. And this is gonna tell us amazing things. And we're gonna learn uh, all these little maybe secret prayers that we need to pray. Or we're gonna need learn how to bind the enemy. It's gonna, it's gonna be very kind of mystical. It's gonna be very uh, amazing. It's like we're gonna reach into the spiritual SWAT, SWAT cabinet and pull out some, just some, some kind of secret weapons we've never heard about before. But what we see in this passage is it's exactly the opposite of that. That the spiritual weapons that Paul refers to are not secret weapons. In fact, they're the weapons that he talks about all the time in all his writings. For example, we'll look at this more next week. But in Ephesians chapter four, just two chapters earlier, Paul has shared this amazing vision of God. He said that, that when we come to Christ, that God has a vision of transformation in our life. And that, that when we come to Christ, um, we have to learn how to put off the old life and put on the new life. And that by the power of his spirit, we will be transformed to be like our creator again. And then he goes through a, a long, almost like two chapters where he's saying like, this is what it looks like to be transformed, right? It's, this is what it looks like to put off the old and put on the new, and it gets very practical. But if you compare that passage on transformation with this passage on spiritual warfare, what you'll find is the exact same weapons. That what Paul is saying is the same steps that we need to take as we listen and follow Jesus to be transformed to be the people who are created to be are the same exact steps that we need to take to win this battle against the enemy. And so we don't wanna make this more complicated or more mystical than it is. And as we go through, that will become, I think, clear. Number three. Oh, before we do that, let me just highlight one more thing. If you stop and think through, I just wanna illustrate what I'm talking about. If you think through these seven weapons that we've talked about today, we've talked, look, what are they? When you break them down, they're number one, truth. Number two is righteousness. Number three is the gospel. Number four is faith. Number five is salvation. Number six is the word of God. And number seven is prayer. Do you see what I mean? This is just like 
core Christianity, but it's being applied in a different way. Like, for example, if you came to me and you said, uh, hey, what's the secret of a great marriage? I would say, well, it starts with character, right? That, that it's, it's chemistry that draws people together, but it's character that makes it last. And we would begin to break that down. Well, what do you mean by character? Well, let's talk about integrity. Let's talk about compassion. Let's talk about humility, right? This is what it takes to to build a great marriage. And you say, okay, great. Let's talk now about what does it take to build a great business or a great company or a great organization? And I would say, easy, it's character, right? And I would start breaking, it's integrity. It's, uh, it's compassion, it is humility, it's the same things. It's the same steps to build a healthy marriage, to build a healthy organization or a business culture. And so what's happening here in chapter six when, we, when Paul starts talking about spiritual warfare, it's not as if he's like, okay, now it's a whole new topic, a whole new ballgame. I've been talking about how to be transformed in Jesus over here, but now we're talking spiritual warfare. So let me go to my spiritual SWAT cabinet here. I'm gonna pull these special weapons to deal with the enemy. No, it's the same, in, it's the same weapons. It's the same actions. The same things that, the same steps that we take to be transformed are the steps we take to win the spiritual battle. And we'll be seeing that as we go through the series. Now, number three. The third principle is that all the weapons are essential. That if you're going to win this spiritual war, We cannot pick and choose which pieces of armor, which weapons we decide to put on or pick up. And this is what Paul is saying here in Ephesians 6.13. I I reprinted just to make it simple. It says, therefore, put on the what? The full armor of God. Put on the full, like don't pick and choose, put on the full armor of God so when the day of evil comes, you'll be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand. Now what's he talking about? After you have done everything. Well, he's told us at the beginning of the passage, hey, you need to be strengthened in the Lord and his mighty power and then put on the full armor of God. Like if you're gonna go out to battle, you need to strap on everything, right? If you're a Roman soldier, you need to put all of your armor and take all of your weapons. You don't say, well, you know what? I'm just feeling a little tired today. I'm gonna put on that belt of truth, but I'm gonna leave off the the breastplate of righteousness. It's just a hot day out there and it's gonna be sweaty and it's gonna be restricted. No, you because if you leave that off, you're leaving yourself vulnerable. And that's the point, when you go to battle, that any enemy worth his salt is going to attack you at your place of vulnerability. Do you remember the Greek tale about the hero Achilles and who was this mighty warrior brought down in battle from the arrow that hit him in the heel, the one place that he didn't have any armor. And the enemy's the same way, is it? When we pick and choose, we leave ourselves vulnerable. And I want you to catch this. This is so important. That this is one of the enemy's greatest strategy in your life and my life is to get us to compromise and rationalize when it comes to putting on the full armor of God. And you say, well, how does he do that? What does that look like? Well, it looks like this. Imagine a man He comes here to Rocky Peak. He's been a Christian his whole life. He's very proud of that, right? That I've known that, I know the Bible, and I have, I I know, you know, Jesus, and I've been around a long time, right? And so he's a long-time Christian, and as a result of that, he believes the Bible. And he is convinced that the Bible is the Word of God. And no matter what culture says, or the pressure that's brought to bear, no. He's gonna hold on to the word. So he's got this belt of truth strapped on his waist, right? He has done, in terms at least of doctrinal truth, he's holding on 
to the word of God. He's got the belt of truth on. But in his own personal life, he's compromising in terms of the breastplate of righteousness. Maybe it's in an area of sexual purity. Maybe it's in an area of pornography. Maybe it's in an area of finances. He hasn't really surrendered his finances to Jesus. Maybe it's an issue of bitterness, that there's someone that he's holding a grudge with. Maybe it's an attitude that he has towards his wife, just a proud and arrogant uh, attitude. I'm the head of this house. Everyone does what I want, whatever it is. So he's holding on to the belt of truth, but he is not putting on the breastplate of righteousness. You see, what happens is that that's exactly where the enemy will attack. And often we will rationalize this, hey, I know I shouldn't be sleeping with my boyfriend or girlfriend, but at least I'm going to church, I'm uh, in a life group, I'm still serving in this ministry, I'm still giving. Hey, well, yeah, I'm not gonna forgive this person, I don't think God could require me to forgive, but I'm doing these other things. And so what we do is we pick and choose which pieces of armor that go on. We neglect the word of God. We don't invest time in prayer. Well, you say, but I'm still doing this and I'm still doing that. Well, that's all great, but guess what? The enemy doesn't care what you're doing. He cares what you're not doing. He's not impressed with the armor or the weapons you have on. He's aiming for the area you are unprotected or the weapons you're not using. And so if we're gonna win this battle, we have to put on the full armor of God. Now, the Apostle Paul gives us a great example of this uh, in Ephesians 4, just two chapters earlier. In fact, it's an amazing window into the enemy and spiritual warfare. It's in that passage I was, I was talking about earlier where he's giving a long list of here's what you put off, here's what you put on to be transformed. And there in your note sheet, in Ephesians chapter four, he says, uh, he quotes the Old Testament uh, from Psalms four in the, in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament. He says, in your anger, do not sin. So he recognizes, Paul says that, hey, you know, we all have a dark side, right? We're all gonna get angry at times. Um, And he said, anger is a very dangerous thing. The Bible never says that anger is always wrong. It just usually is. In in fact, uh, a couple of verses down in Ephesians 4, that's why Paul will say, get rid of all anger and rage. And the reason is, it usually motivates us to do evil things, wrong things. But, but here Paul says, hey, in your anger, do not sin. He recognizes anger is not sin, but it puts you in the orbit. It puts you in a place of temptation. So he says, in your anger, do not sin. And he says, do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. In other words, hey, we're all gonna get angry, but move towards it. Either forgive the person that made you angry, forgive them for what they did, or move towards them and try to reconcile and work it out. But don't hold on to it. Don't defend it. Don't nurture it. Don't give it room to grow in your life. Don't hold on to it. Don't kind of re, you know, reimagine it, kind of rework it over and over in your head again and let it get bigger. Replay it in your mind over and over. And, he, and then he tells us why. He says, do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Don't just deal with it. He said, and do not give the devil a what? of foothold. Now in the Greek, the word there for foothold is literally the word place. Don't give Satan place in your life. And what Paul is saying is here's a great example of how spiritual warfare works. When you get angry, if you don't deal with it, if you justify it, you hold on to it, you nurture it, you don't, you don't try to get rid of it, he says you might as well be inviting Satan to come and to say, stand right here, here's a place for you. 
I think of it, for example, if you're angry with your wife, you're angry with your husband, and you're not moving towards it to resolve it, you might as well say, create a table for you and your spouse and invite the enemy. Say, hey, we set a place for you. When you're holding on to anger, whether it's someone in your life group, it's someone in a ministry team, it's a relative, it's someone on the job, that when we hold on to anger and nurture that anger and justify that anger, we are giving an invitation to Satan to come and stand here in my life. And, and here's the thing, from that place, he will attack. We are opening the door for Satan to attack us and to launch a campaign against our life in that place of our sin. And I believe this is true not just for anger, but this is true for any area of disobedience. That when we are living in rebellion, when we are living in sin, we are inviting the enemy, we are giving him a place to stand from which to launch an attack on our life. And so this is why it's so, Paul says, it is so important that you put on the full armor of God. You don't pick, you don't choose. You don't pick between truth and righteousness, between righteousness and faith, or hey, well, at least I've got faith, so I don't need the word of God in prayer. No, no, you need the full armor if you're going to take your stand. And then number four. Number four is the goal of this whole battle, this this whole passage, the goal is to stand. I don't know if you notice this, but four times in five verses, Paul says the goal in this spiritual battle is to stand. I want you to look at there on your, on your note sheet. In Ephesians chapter six, Paul says, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your what? Your stand, that's number one. Against the devil's schemes, his strategies. And then he says, for our struggles not against flesh and blood and against the rulers and authorities and the powers, the spiritual forces of the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so in the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. That's number two. And after you've done everything, to stand. Number three. And then stand firm with the belt of truth buckled around your waist with the breastplate of righteousness in place. Four times in five verses, Paul says the whole goal is to stand. This is powerful. One of my favorite movies of all time is the movie 300. In fact, I actually have the poster up in my workout room to inspire me. Uh, in fact, it was, it was given to me by like, the director or something, he signed it and crossed out some things. He heard that I'd used it in a movie, I mean, used, it, used the movie clip and his sermon, and so he was inspired by that. He sent it to me, and so I've got it up in my garage. But I don't know if you've seen that movie, but it's, a, it's an epic tale of uh, the Battle of Thermopylae, where this huge horde, it's a, it's a true story, uh, this, the huge hordes of the Persian army, I mean, just you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of, uh, are coming against or trying to invade Greece. And so the Greeks send 300 of their best warriors, the Spartans, to go, and they, they try to cut this army off in this deep canyon valley at Thermopylae where there's vast thousands and thousands, they, they can't get around these 300 warriors. They have to go through them. And time and time again in that, in that movie, if you've never seen it, if you, if, when you do see it, you'll watch this, that these Spartans stand shield to shield with one another. And though there are a few, there are several deep, and they just, they take their stand. And the Persians send hundreds and hundreds against them, time and time, just rushing against them. They're shoulder to shoulder, shield to shield, and you can see in slow motion, you can watch their muscles rippling and their, the sweat coming off their brow as they take their stand and this, they're able to absorb this huge hit and then to go on the attack and win time and time again. And the only way they're eventually taken is when they're betrayed and a secret pathway is shown to the army that get them from behind. 
But when I, when I see this, when I read this passage in Ephesians, it's always this picture of Paul saying, men and women, it's time for you to take your stand. I've told you who you are in this whole letter. I've told you in chapter one, if you're a follower of Jesus, I've told you who you are. I've told you that when you came to Jesus, you need to understand some things about yourself. If you're a follower of Jesus, you were chosen before time. If you're a follower of Jesus, you were chosen not just to be forgiven and not just to be adopted into God's family, but to receive his very spirit. You could join him in his mission. And your future in this next world that's coming is amazing. And in the meantime, you've been united to the resurrected king. His death is your death. His life is your death. You've risen with him. You've ascended with him. You're seated at the right hand of God. You have the power you need. You're connected to the one who's conquered the powers of darkness. God's vision for your life in chapter four is transformation. He wants to recreate you to be like your creator. As you listen and follow, you will be transformed. And so he gets to chapter six and he says, and so take your stand. The enemy's gonna come, he's gonna bring everything he has, but take your stand, you have everything you need to succeed. Plug into the resurrected king, draw on his mighty power, put on the armor of God and take your stand. Don't let him push you back, don't let him, don't give way, don't give up. Don't fall back. You know, it's interesting that over the last many years, I've done a lot of study in Roman history. And if you study Roman history, you study a lot about Roman war. One thing I never knew, but I I learned from, from study, is that in ancient battle, that it's when a battle line would break, when, when the army would not take its stand, when that line was broken, that's when disaster happened. As long as they could take their stand, they could win. But if that battle line was broken and they lost their way and they, they gave in, they gave up, and they began to run, that's when the casualties would happen. That's when the deaths, that's when the wounds would happen. That's when the rout would happen. And so Paul calls us to take our stand. It's interesting, um, as I was preparing for this message, that I noticed something that I'd never noticed before, and um, it's kind of obvious, you know, once you point it out, but that I'd never seen it before. What I hadn't noticed was how prevalent stand language is in the letters of the Apostle Paul. How many times he calls his converts to take their stand in a variety of, to take their stand doctrinally, to take their stand against the enemy, to take their stand against temptation, a wide variety of contexts. Um, and I, as, I, as I discovered that, it struck me, oh, I wonder if this, this military metaphor is always at the back of his mind, never far away. Let me give you some examples. There in your note sheet. I put seven examples. I just want to rifle through them real quickly to show you what I mean. So the first one is in, 2 Thessalonians 2, the context is Paul is talking about the Antichrist and the end times and and how they need to take their stand for what is right and true and good and not give in. And he says, so then brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings that we passed on to you. One of the ways we stand firm is by holding on to the word and the teachings. 1 Corinthians 16, 13, of course, a thoroughly messed up church. And Paul says, be on your guard, stand firm in your faith, be courageous and be strong. Philippians 4, therefore my brothers and sisters with whom I I love and I long for my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Galatians 5, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Colossians 4, Epaphras, one of the leaders of the church, he's wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in the word of God, mature and fully assured. Philippians 1.27, whatever happens, Paul's writing from prison in Rome, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And then whether I come and I see you or I just get to hear of you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, united striving together for the faith of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, 1, now my brothers and sisters, I wanna remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, and on which you have taken your stand. 
What we see is that for the Apostle Paul, this is what the battle is about. There's an enemy, he's bright, he's powerful, he's strategic, he's gonna bring everything he can, but you are a follower of Jesus. You have been chosen before time. You have been adopted into his family. You have been forgiven. You have the righteousness of Christ. You have the spirit of God. You are connected to the resurrected Jesus. You have authority over the powers, so take your stand. He's gonna come at you. He's gonna get you to doubt. He's gonna give you, get you to give way, to give up, to give in. He's gonna try to drive you back. He's gonna give it, try to give you, get into to doubt, to despair, to disappointment. He's gonna try to give you compromise into temptation. He's gonna try to make you lazy and get spiritually drunk and forget what's important. But brothers and sisters, you have everything you need to win, so take your stand. And this is a challenge for us. And so I have a question. There in your note sheet is a section called Spiritual Warfare, one key question. And as we wrap up today, as we think about moving into the future in this series, here's the question that I wanna ask you, are you using all your weapons? Are you using, we saw today that if we're gonna win this war, we have to be plugged in. Can I tell you, men and women, this world is coming apart. (laughs) We live in a culture that's losing its way. We are reaping what we've sown. And as brothers and sisters in Christ, we have to be on our game if we're gonna move into the future with Jesus and win this spiritual battle that's ahead of us. And so the question I have is, is are you suited up? Do you have your armor on? Do you have your weapons at hand? Is your shield up, your helmet on, the sword in place? Are you using all your weapons? Because here's what we've seen is that when we don't, we leave ourselves open to attack and we will very likely lose. It's really interesting, you know, one of the churches in the New Testament that was pretty consistently messed up was the church at Corinth. And of course, Paul wrote to them many letters, we have two of them. But in one of his letters, and we call it 1 Corinthians, um, he's, he's writing to them, so, so catch this. They'd come to Jesus, they'd received the gift of his spirit. On top of that, they'd been incredibly gifted as a church with amazing spiritual gifts, miracles, um, discernment, you know, uh, tongues, healings, just all kinds of things, right? Uh, prophecy. And yet, they were being tempted to go back to their old ways. They were being tempted to compromise and to to try to mix Jesus with the worship of their old pagan gods. They were being tempted to to go back to their old sexual practices. Um, They were being tempted to grumble against one another and against leadership. And so Paul writes to them in 1 Corinthians 10, he says, listen, so if you think you're standing firm, catch that language, if you think you're standing firm. Be careful you don't what? Fall. You see, when we don't have all of our armor on, when we don't have all of our weapons at hand, we are putting ourselves in harm's way. We're creating space for the enemy in our lives, and we're in danger of falling. So let me ask you this. Do you have your belt of truth on? Are you embracing the truth that's revealed in scripture or are you compromising with the pressure of the world around you to redefine reality in this culture we're in? Are you putting on that breastplate of righteousness? Is there any area of your life you're knowing, you've rationalized your rebellion? You've rationalized your sin. You've said, hey, well, at least I'm not doing this or at least I'm doing all these things, but this one I'll get to later. What about the gospel of peace, the gospel of reconciliation? Are there relationships in your life that are broken, that you're not moving forward to heal? 
What about the shield of faith right now? Is your faith under attack and you're considering giving in? What about the hope of your salvation, this future hope that we have? Are you future focused? Are you living this day for that day? Or have you forgotten what it means to be a Christian, that, that, that we live for the next life, not this life, and anytime we lose that, we open ourselves up for attack? What about the sword of the Spirit? Is your sword in shape? Is it oiled and wetted? Is it ready for battle? Does it have a sharp edge on it? Are you spending time in the word? Are you making weekend services, learning and other learnings, are you making those a priority? And what about prayer? Are you carving out time in your life to make a priority of prayer, to be protecting your family, your friends, the body of Christ, praying for our nation? You see, what Paul says is we can only win if we're plugging into the resurrected king and into his mighty power and we're putting on the full armor of God, we can't pick and choose. So the question I have is, are you using all your weapons? Are you strapping on all your armor so that when the time comes, you can take your stand? Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you for the beauty of your word that just speaks with such profundity, such power, such beauty, that calls us to what is right and good and true, reminds us of what's most important in life. And Father, as we continue to explore the realm of the unseen, that we're actually targets, that we, as followers of Jesus, there's a target on our back that we're being schemed against, we're being plotted against, but you provided with everything that we need to succeed. But for our part, we, we have to be sober. We have to be alert that we need to be plugged in and strapped up. We need to be ready to go. And so, Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be speaking these truths to our heart, that we would be living in the realm of the unseen increasingly as a church, and that you would teach us how to take our stand. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.